Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, welcome back, Jeremy. How are you doing today? It's been a, a really nice week, so it's always good to close out a Friday speaking to my buddy, Paul. Well, likewise, likewise. And uh, I got nothing planned for this weekend except hanging out on the deck, so, so this will be great. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's going to be nice to have a, a few beers, I think, to relax this weekend, that's for sure. Very cool. Say, so this week, we're, we're going to pivot a little bit. This Our guest this week is, talked about infrastructure as code, so we'll, we'll be talking with Sam Kogan. But so this week, the links, I wanted to just hit a couple a couple little graphy things, and then I have a bunch of stuff on Azure. But So obviously, the first one has to be the community call, which sadly I had a miss, but that happened a couple days ago on June 2nd. So there was a, a presenter on there with a name I recognized. So give us an update on the community call, if you would. I mean, we gave a bit of a build update. We've had feedback that it was actually pretty hard to navigate all the stuff post-build. Um, and so I kind of actually went through and explained, like, here are the places you should be, like, tracking and RSS feeds for, like, blog posts and all the samples we open-sourced and YouTube videos and so forth. So um, definitely check that one out. And then we had... Betty, who's in our team in our Nairobi office, who is the PM for Graph Explorer. And she kind of demonstrated all the new features of Graph Explorer, which obviously we covered at Build, but it wasn't focused on Graph Explorer per se. It was more focused on APIs. And so she covered the, you know, the new security tab that essentially for every command you're running Graph, it lists here are all the permissions that could make this command work and actual consent buttons directly in Graph Explorer, which will then like give Graph Explorer consent to run that permission, um, which is really, really cool. And a code snippets tab that allows you to run the Graph API and, and actually see the C-sharp code or the Java code or the horrible Objective-C code um, <laughs> to actually go run that you know, in your own apps, which is two features we've been working on for a while and uh, really excited to get out there. And then the rest of the session was just kind of open free-for-all on feedback, which um, we've already put some stuff in the backlogs for already for pl- with our planning we're doing at the moment so yeah it was actually nice to kind of have a little bit of unstructure and really get free form feedback from i think at least seven or eight people kind of spoke and um, gave us feedback on like sdks and different things so definitely go check that out it's recorded on youtube on the m mics 365 youtube channel yeah, and we got a link in there too. So, and you mentioned uh, samples, and I know the uh, a colleague of yours, Jason, posted an update to a snippet sample. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so we clean house at the end of every fiscal year, so at the end of this month, end of June. We look at like stats of how popular repos are, and we we archive them, which essentially archives them in GitHub, which just indicates to customers that they can still go use it, but um, we're not going to maintain it if msol libraries update or our sdks update or new things come out that we want to add to it we were trying to get rid of these snippets libraries primarily because they're quite a big maintenance management on them um, because they're quite sophisticated products that kind of showcase a lot of areas of the graph turns out we're getting lots of hits on it we're not really sure where someone's pointing to this but there's lots of downloads of it or clones and different things jason updated it to asp.net core 3.1 and all the latest uh, graph SDKs, plus the new Microsoft Identity.Web NuGet package that basically handles all the MSAL auth properly, 
rather than what previously identity wanted you to do was copy like a thousand lines of code into your application, uh, which they announced at Build. So, And next week, a couple of little guys who work with that a lot, Christos and uh, John, talk about that. Oh, uh, yeah, Christos is awesome. Yeah, they, they, they're behind that Microsoft Identity Web Library. So tune in next week for more details on, on how that library fits in there. So, yeah, it's good to see that it's being used. Now that it's, now that it's a NuGet package, it's uh, good to see all the other, I guess, orgs in, in Microsoft adopt it and move it forward. So looking forward to that. Yeah, that was a great example where we got a ton of feedback from people and we went to the identity team and was like, hey, look, you really need to go do this. Like thousand lines of code manually pasted into a project is just not cool. And the .NET group we're pushing it to. But it's not just that. And we talk about it next week that it really helps bridge the gap between what identity is, um, what ASP.NET is doing to say who's mm-hmm. logged in at the other end of the browser and then how do I get tokens? So it's good stuff. So winning all around. Woo. Yes, indeed. Um, and so now there's a, I got a handful of um, Azure slash developer related links. These are from Build. Remember, we said before we had a lot of information out of Build, and we'll sprinkle it as we go forward. So a couple here that are on the, the bot framework area, the, the bot framework virtual assistant and conversational AI updates. These are a couple of blog posts from Gary Pretty, who has been on the show back on the Ignite time frame, and I reached out to him to try to get him back. So um, if you're in that space and you want to... Uh, learn more about these tools. Uh, sadly, I haven't read them all in depth yet, but it's on my to-do list, obviously, with our product. So good to see updates from them. Yeah, it's good to see that virtual assistant go to V1 too. Um, I demoed that in a build session in 2019, and I remember they were sitting with me for like an hour before my session started to try and get some of my demos back working where they'd made changes to it. So it's really clever tech, what they're doing, and there's a bunch of skills in there that demonstrate how to kind of connect to the graph. So I'm excited to get him back on to talk about that. Didn't they have a video back at Ignite with a woman walking into the office and talking to her phone and booking meetings yeah. and stuff? Yeah, they have so. way more budget than we do to go create those <laughs> kind of things. But that video is very clever. Yeah, to, to your point, it's good to see that moving along. So that, that's great yeah. to see. And then there's a couple other general uh, items. Windows Terminal has released. So we have a link to the official docs page on the Windows Terminal as well as the new Windows Package Manager. Um, I assume you're using Terminal, yes? I'm using Terminal, um, although I still need to set up my profile correctly so I have the right PowerShell Windows load on start. I do have a fancy theme that we were given as a build presenter that promotes the logo and the short link in the bottom right of every window. So when I do demos, everyone can see it. And then the package manager, I've been using that a little bit with Winget stuff and Power Toys as well. If you're not using Power Toys, there are so many reasons. I think we mentioned that last week's show. Although I will say, I play a lot of Call of Duty recently because of this COVID stuff and being under lockdown. And there's a key combination that basically jumps me out of my game mid-game and has that like pop-up window like a mac os pop-up window for running commands it's caught me out a few times oh i remapped it too yeah i use mine it's windows space because if it's better on my keyboard than what the default was yeah so you can remap that so it's pretty cool yeah but you know that windows terminal i I posted a blog post a couple weeks back it's wonderful because you can have a, a batch file or a command to open the terminal so I have a, 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 a .cmd file in the repo. So then in Visual Studio Code, I open it to integrate a terminal and run this one command, and it launches Windows Terminal, provisions three different windows, starts my API layer, connects up NGROC, does all kinds of stuff that I need to do to be testing out the bot with mm. SPFX. And oh, you need to put that link in the show notes and send it to me right now because that would have been super <laughs> useful for that uh, <laughs> session I did the other week. Uh, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so if you're not using Windows Terminal, it's pretty cool, and, and I'll find a link then to 
how to customize the command, how to launch the terminal using the command and, and split the windows left and right and stuff. Pretty cool. So that's our intro this week. And um, a few weeks back, I interviewed Sam Kogan. Sam is an MVP out of the United Kingdom. And he, as I tend to do, I was lurking on the Twitters and he posted that he could present on Azure stuff. So I said, hey, why not? So we talk about infrastructure as code, which I know is kind of a not so great of a developer term, but I, I, I approached it with the idea that, hey, Dev, you should probably be talking to the infrastructure guys or know what's going on. And if and this is happening and you could be helpful to them is most of us developers know how to use Git. So if they're going to put code to create infrastructure, they might use Git as well. So really appreciate Sam taking the time to talk. And uh, we go into all kinds of scripts and tools. And he mentioned a lot of words I didn't understand. <laughs> But I'm hoping that uh, <laughs> um, it p- uh, piques interest on folks and uh, and good stuff. And then uh, we have a bunch of guests in the can, a couple lined up. So it's exciting times post-build. And, uh, cool. It's awesome. Good. I'm looking forward to listening to this one. I haven't had a chance. I know you recorded this a few weeks ago, but I'm looking forward to this coming on my phone so I can just have it played across my uh, Sonos while I'm cooking. There you go. Awesome. All right, buddy. Have a good week. Yeah, you too, mate. Cheers. So this week on the podcast, we have Sam Kogan. Welcome, Sam. Hi. And so I was, as normally happens, I was lurking on the Twitters, and Sam uh, posted a tweet about offering to do a remote presentation. And so I, I repurposed his tweet to say, hey, how about come on the podcast? So thank you very much for agreeing to do this with us. I really appreciate it. No worries. Happy to be here. And uh, why don't you tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do? I'm, I'm Sam Kogan, as I said. I'm a solutions architect for a company called Willis Towers Watson based in the UK, but I'm also a Microsoft Azure MVP. So I do a lot of work with community things, talking about Azure, and in particular, I focus on a lot of the IT ops side of things, uh, particularly looking at things like infrastructure as code, how do we do DevOps with cloud, all those sort of things. Um, so that's that's what I spend a lot of time doing. In my day job, I'm also doing a lot of work to actually implement those sort of things into production. Okay, and obviously this is not a super developer-related topic, but I think there's some value in having developers, number one, understand the pain that we make our IT brethren go through. And maybe I'm sure there's some tips that you can you can share with us. So my first question, obviously, is what is infrastructure as code? Yeah, sure. So infrastructure code is, as the name suggests, taking your infrastructure and turning it into code rather than doing things manually like we've done in the past. So I'm sure most of the people listening will have experienced where you go and ask, I I need a new server, and someone will go away and they'll go and rack a new server and they'll turn it on and they'll go and set it up manually and use use the GUI or command line or whatever to go and create all the settings and that sort of thing. And somebody's doing that manually and the next time they do it, they'll do it again manually and it might be different and they might have missed something or they might have done something slightly different that means when you get a hold of that server, it doesn't work quite the same as the last one you had. And so infrastructure as code is the process of saying, okay, let's not do that anymore. Let's define our infrastructure like it was code and it can be reproducible. We can rerun the same thing over and over again and get the same results at the end of it. It's come to the forefront really in the world of cloud. So Instead of people racking servers now, we're buying them from Microsoft or Azure, uh, Amazon, or or so on. And so there's no longer an easy way to go and set up a server manually if you're doing hundreds of cloud servers every day. So infrastructure as code in the cloud worlds mean we can define our infrastructure very easily and then use these these code files to create them on demand, turn them off again or reuse them um, and not have to worry about manual configuration every time. 
the infrastructure, is this restricted to servers or virtual machines, or could this actually apply to anything that I'm trying to run code on? Yeah, pretty much anything. So it all depends, you know, what tools you're going to use and what providers are available for the service you're using. But in, if you look at any modern cloud provider, um, you can you can define pretty much any resource as code. What does this code look like? What are my, what are my options for doing this? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of things do I look for? So there's, there's kind of two views on infrastructure as code, I guess. There is a, an imperative approach and a declarative approach. And if you talk and look at most of the ways people are doing it today, particularly with cloud providers, we're looking at the declarative approach. But it's worth sort of talking about the, the former quickly. That is what perhaps has been around a bit longer, which is doing writing scripts, writing PowerShell or Bash scripts or something that go sequentially through and run whatever commands you tell it to. That 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 is infrastructure as code, but it's not really what a lot of people think of today. If you ask if you talk about infrastructure as code really, people are saying it's, it's declarative code. I don't want to have to care anymore about how I deploy something. I just want to define what I want to deploy and the platform can take care of the how for me. So there are tools um, if you, in the Azure platform, Azure Resource Manager is one way of doing that. There are other tools like Terraform, Pulumi, CloudFormation for um, Amazon, and so on. And what they allow you to do is define your infrastructure as a set of declarations saying, I would like a virtual machine and a storage account and a database. I don't care how you, you make it happen, but that is what I would like. This is my desired state, effectively, and make it happen. And you run, run the template, and at the end of that, you would get whatever you've asked for. You mentioned desired state, and that, that kind of begs the question for me, right? So if I'm a developer and I'm writing code, um, to me, the desired state could be a lot, well, I want to say higher up in the stack, right? So I don't necessarily care what disks are attached to a VM or if I'm just running on an Azure app service, I only care about maybe my my app settings and, and deploying my DLL to the folder. Can I do that as well with this infrastructure's code options? Sometimes. So there's, there's, a, there's a dividing line between what you might call infrastructure as code and configuration management. And there's, it's a bit of a blurred line because sometimes different tools will, will do one or the other. If you take the example of Azure Resource Manager, uh, which is the way you do infrastructure as code in Azure, um, that will deploy you a virtual machine. And it will, say, as you say, attach all the disks and, and other things. But it won't really configure what's inside that virtual machine It will, beyond the operating system being installed. And so that's where you might then switch to a configuration management tool like PowerShell Desire State or Chef or Puppet or you know all the other tools that are out there um, to take over from the point of configuration management. But often the two will work hand in hand. You will probably have, as your resource manager, install a plugin or a uh, an extension to then go and trigger a DSC run to happen on the machine um, so there's often a handoff between those two and there's a bit of a blurred line you mentioned app settings on a web app well you can you can configure the app settings on a web app in Azure Resource Manager templates um, so you can you can do that but if you're looking at a VM configuring that you want to install IIS is not something you can do in a, in a Resource Manager template when I first saw Desired State now granted it has been quite a time and, uh, and I'm a developer so when I first saw this the kind of idea was it was it was looking at my VM or my machine and and if the configuration strayed from what I had declared it would put it back is that still how that all works 
It does from the configuration management perspective, yes. There's a bit of a difference in there between between infrastructure as code and configuration management in that respect. Um, because with, with your configuration management, usually you've got an agent or something that's running on a regular basis on the machine that will go and um, look at the state and, as you say, revert it back to what it's going to do. Whereas generally with your infrastructure as code sort of things, you're running them when you deploy them and then you probably wouldn't run it again until you needed to make a change or you needed to, to do something different. And so there isn't that regular drift correction um, with infrastructure as code. There are some methods of doing that. There is a, you know, I've seen some things where you can have puppets calling ARM templates and doing something like that, but I've never really seen them work very well. Um, so for the for the most part, there, there, there is a difference. Yeah, which kind of makes sense to me because I always thought like, how why would the configuration drift, especially if it's a cloud resource, right? But there's not like you have just you know users strolling around and, and clicking buttons because it's in the cloud, right? So that's less of an issue as what I'm I'm taking away from this. Yeah, yeah it, it is. I mean, generally and generally, if it does drift, you want to try and figure out why because if if it's drifted, your infrastructure is drift, drifted. Then usually the most common way for that is because somebody's come and made a manual change that wasn't defined in your infrastructure as code, and then you actually probably want to make you understand that the Esther has been drift and why has it been drift because do I maybe need to put that into my template because if you run your template again and that drift's not accounted for it will probably just change it back to the original state and actually maybe that setting you needed was important so you probably do want to understand why I guess the question is if I'm looking at something in the cloud would I want to run that template again I guess that's where I'm struggling is how why would I want to do that right yeah one of the big things with with declarative infrastructure code is that your templates really want to be idempotent as well so you can run them over and over and they don't if nothing's changed, then they won't do anything. And so that means that you can, if you are going to make changes to your infrastructure, because things will need to change over time, you generally would want to go in and update your template and then run that again to implement whatever changes you want so that all of your changes are recorded in your infrastructure as code. Potentially that's even checked into your Git repo so you've got a history of those changes um, and it can, as well as actually changing your infrastructure, it can put form part of your documentation of the infrastructure as well. Okay, and, and so that begs a couple of different questions. First of all, I, I would think that if I have it in GitHub or in some type of repository, then in theory I could I could trigger uh, the application of that, right? I mean, I know there's uh, a lot of the samples I see out on the Azure website is click here to deploy this to Azure. And so do you use that kind of automated process between GitHub and, and deploying the changes in, in your work? Yeah, so if you're going to implement infrastructure as code in a production setting, then you're going to want to move away from the manual running of, of these sort of things. And you're going to start looking at using more developer-like techniques like build pipelines. It's, it's very common to run a, an infrastructure as code template as part of your build pipeline, maybe before you actually then go and deploy your code into that environment. And so absolutely, you can run these as, as an automated process using whatever you know, tools like Azure DevOps, Jenkins, whatever your, your build service of choices. Yeah, and so I guess that work gets back to the item potency that you mentioned. If I'm going to be running my template on every build or on every master branch push, it better not do anything destructive, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or at least that you know about. Uh, yeah, so there, generally there are there are two different ways you can configure templates to run, either in a, a complete mode where you actually do want it to ensure that whatever's in the cloud exactly matches what in your is in your template. So if somebody's come in and a manual, made a manual change, you want to reset that back because you're very 
you, you know, you're very clear that you want things to match. And then the other option is to be more accepting to that and actually you just deploy what you're asked for. If something's already there, then you'll leave it alone or you'll perhaps tweak the configuration, but you won't destroy it and you won't you won't delete it. You can be, you can really look at going either way depending on what your tolerance for manual change is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We mentioned a little bit before about drift, and and if again, I'm not well versed in this, but I, does that where the audit logs in Azure can help? That it would tell me if somebody changed something or when it was changed to help me identify these. Yeah, to some extent. Um, the audit logs in Azure are a little bit limited, particularly because they only sit around for about 90 days. Um, so if you, if, you, if you don't find that, then you, you'll be out of luck. Particularly one of, one of the usual ones I come across is somebody coming along and saying, who created this VM that's been sat around and nobody knows who owns it? Usually you can't find the audit log for that. But yes, if you're, if you're within the timescale, the audit log should show you the changes. Now that can be a little bit confusing if you've automated all this and it's just service principles that are making the changes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it should, it should at least give you an, a trail of what's happened and, and when. Yeah, and so those now integrate with Azure Monitor, right? Have you seen that? Yeah, so I think that's, and I've just started to kick the tires in this myself to, to say when put the logs in Azure Monitor and it can raise alerts. Have you done much in that space? A little bit, yeah. So that, that is a, a good solution, A, for raising alerts, and B, because you can actually put it into log analytics and get a much longer retention period as well. So it, some of those um, issues around uh, retaining the, the, the logs. But yes, uh, that's quite a good solution. You can, you can be aware that somebody's done something and you can, you can then perhaps go and talk to them and say, you know, why did you make this manual change? Right. Okay. There are some cases like so. So one is example that I've come across recently is that there's something like an Azure Web App deployed in in a region, and now I need to put it in a second region. Can this infrastructure's code help me there? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I don't want it to. Do I necessarily want it to automatically do worldwide changes or, or see? To me, that's where a script seems to make sense. Say, hey, if I run the script, I get all the things I need in in US or UK regions. Well, how does infrastructure as code help me in that regard? Yeah. So one of the big things that most infrastructure as code tools implement is some sort of parameterization of variables. So you can basically write a template that is designed to deploy all of your infrastructure for one particular yeah, for a single region, but you can parameterize it in a way that you can pass in different different parameters based on which region you want to deploy to. So you can use the same template and you can deploy it four different times, passing in a different region name or, or location or whatever the, the difference is. And you can manage those as separate deployments still, but you can use the same code as the basis for them so that if you, you, know, if you need to make a change, you can make it in one place and then roll it out. But you can roll it out as you want. Um, you know, if you want to do a test environment first and then go to production and so on. Oh, yeah, that's a whole other issue, right? Yeah, I didn't think of that. But if I'm onboarding a developer, maybe I want a, a smaller version, right? And I guess this... Yeah, and you've also got the option then, if you're putting it in Git, you can again have different Git branches that hold slightly different versions of the code. If you're testing a new change, you can do it in a feature branch, test it in development, and then roll it into master. You know, one of the great things about infrastructure as code is you can really start treating it like code. You can even do tests and other things. Now, we mentioned before there's there's other tools. Do you find it helpful to get third-party tools in this, or do you get what you need out of the box with, with say, Azure? Obviously, we're a Microsoft show here, yeah. so we're focusing more on Azure, but am I going to run into roadblocks trying to do this all just out of the box? It depends what you want to do and how far you want to go. So, as I mentioned, the Azure sort of approach is using Azure Resource Manager templates. They're the Microsoft-created uh, approach, and they will let you deploy things in, in Azure using a JSON-like format for the language. That is going to be the tool that has the most is the most up to date it's obviously going to get the new resources as they get released but it has some limitations one of which obviously is the fact that it's purely focused on azure 
So if you're looking at doing something where you've got multiple clouds, um, then some of the other third-party tools might be useful. The big one is really Terraform. That's the one you'll probably hear most people talking about, which is a tool from a company called HashiCorp, which allows you to do multi-cloud deployments and and other non-cloud things as well. So HashiCorp has a large amount of providers for Terraform for all the clouds, so the big clouds, Google, Amazon, uh, Azure, all of those, but also things like Kubernetes and uh, uh, VMware vSphere and lots of other on-prem things as well. Um, So if you want to do deployments that either encompass multiple things or if you're just a shop that needs to deploy different things to different places at different times, having a single common language can be quite helpful. So Terraform is one way of doing that. Another tool um, which is a bit newer is one called Pulumi. Um, which is a a similar tool. It has support for multiple clouds and and on-prem and everything else, but it's really based around being able to write your infrastructure's code as true code, as in you can write it in C-sharp or TypeScript or other real programming languages, whereas both Terraform and ARM templates use more of a um, domain-specific language, which is not—it's not really a code language. It's—it's it's more of a declarative language. Um, so, yeah, the Pulumi one often appeals to more developer-type folks who are who want to write those templates in the languages they know. Yeah, and I can I can second that developer style, right? Because I've I've numerous times I've gone into to the ARM template language, I guess for like uh, air quotes language, and I get stuck with doing things, and I get stuck, and I say, well, I could do this in in the CLI. Yep. <laughs> What is the what is the performance like? I mean, do I have to worry about these deployments taking a long time? If I, especially I'm doing it like in a build server or you know a CI/CD pipeline, do, is there any concern about that? Yeah, there definitely is. So infrastructure deployments are not terribly quick usually most of the time, um, particularly if you're deploying things like virtual machines, which do take you know they, they take five to ten minutes to create a virtual machine. Uh, if you're deploying a lot of them and you've got dependencies, you need to wait for one machine for another one. You can create deployments that do take multiple hours. It's very common to see that with with large scale deployments um, so you do need to think about that and potentially you need to think about breaking up your deployments into chunks a because it's if you're running deployments the longer they run for the more chance there is of something happening that's going to cause them to break um, and that's that's something you have to deal with all the time but b if you are going to make changes um, to your infrastructure having a smaller chunk as possible reduces the blast radius on those changes so if you do get something wrong it's only going to affect a smaller amount of infrastructure rather than if you've got one file that does your 600 vm deployment in one one go that might seem really efficient and, and helpful but if you manage to delete all 600 vms once by accident um, you'll probably regret that <laughs> well yeah and i guess uh, long, uh larger deployments have a high, longer downtime uh, you typically then too right yeah that totally makes sense and then i guess the other question then becomes well at least uh, me as a developer and i if i'm i'm writing some solution i'm building something and i say oh i needed a web app or an app service oh it needs a database or it needs this and it needs that I would think it seems hard to me to have to go flip back and forth between an ARM template and my code and and just make things worse. So is there a way to help us out if a developer is doing the point and click, building what he needs, but then it needs to be, you know, infrastructure as codeized later? Is there tools to help me with that? Some. It's an area where there is some help, but it's not always the best. So if you're doing if you're doing work in Azure, you can create resources in the portal, um, and then you can actually go click on the particular resource you're interested in. And there's a I can't remember what it's called now, but there is a an option where you can go and view an ARM template that the portal's generated for you based on what you've created. So you can take that as a starting point to go and build your own templates based off of that. 
I say it's lacking because it's often a lot more verbose than perhaps you would actually want to put in your own template. Um, it, you know, it will generate a parameter for every single optional choice in, in the resource where a lot of the times you try and condense them down into a couple of parameters and things. So you do have to go away and you know, condense it down a bit and, and remove some of the verbosity in it to make it usable. Um, but it's a good starting point if you're trying to you know, figure out which properties of a resource you have to set and all these sort of things. Okay, yeah, and I guess it's trying to decide which one is something that the developer needs versus a default, right? Is that kind of yeah. the, the, the target? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And even some of them which you can't actually change anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, boy. Well, so do you find other tools that help with that reverse engineering or, or, or coming in later, or is it really just a process of going through them? Yeah, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a space that's a bit lacking at the moment. So tools like Terraform do offer an import function, but it's more about importing the state of your resources rather than creating a template for you. So they don't they don't have a tool that will just generate a template. So th there isn't really a good set of tools that will just say, point this at my infrastructure and make me make me templates at the minute beyond what you can get in Azure through the portal uh, template experience. Okay, and so then do you try to to partner with your developers as the, the project is moving along, or is it really just a big bang at the end? Have you found success or problems in one approach or the other? I would very much suggest not doing a big bang at the end. Um, we've been through that in different stages, and uh, yeah, it, it does cause some problems. Um, so yeah, you really need to partner early. And and to be honest, in, in this sort of new world of DevOps, getting the developers involved in this process and taking some ownership of it, I think, is actually really important. So it's, it's no longer a case that the, the IT ops folks are going to create all the infrastructure for you, particularly if you want to do testing and development against a production-like set of infrastructure. Um, the development team hopefully will want to take some ownership of that process and particularly with cloud providers, if they're going to want to destroy and recreate the infrastructure on demand to save costs and, and make sure they're clean every time they do a test, then they need to have a reasonable understanding of, of what these templates are doing. And if they want changes, it may even be faster for the developers to start making the changes themselves than it is to try and get the IT ops folks to, to come in and do that. Um, so I'm definitely seeing more and more development teams picking up writing infrastructure and deploying that as part of their process and taking ownership of that rather than just relying on some you know, throwing it over the fence and getting somebody else to do it so that that begs the the big question of what permissions do i have in my cloud provider or azure first to do these types of things and and then can that be coded as infrastructure you know, infrastructure as code to to do i'm guessing that means our back right so uh, yeah uh, okay so so what's the state of the state if you will uh, in setting up or allowing your developers to do these kind of things without spending all the money yeah yeah so you can absolutely set up our back and, and permissions and so on using infrastructure as code you can define that obviously the person who's deploying that needs to have the permissions to be able to deploy the RBAC. So there is a, there is a you know, chicken and egg problem slightly, but, uh, but yes, you can define all that in your infrastructure as code, but you're right. The next step then is, well, what do you give, what rights do you give the, uh, the developers to be able to go and do this? Because they need to test things out. They need to get used to it and figure out how it works and try things out. And, but if you do that a lot and you leave infrastructure turned on and it can get very expensive very quickly. So you need to couple this together with, you know, the developers having access to some sort of development subscription where they can deploy their resources but also some sort of governance and policy to make sure they're deploying the right type of resources and not not creating some massive m series vm that costs thousands of pounds a day and also some cost governance to make sure that people are destroying infrastructure when they're done with it that it's not being left on for months at a time when nobody's using it there is a 
a load of other stuff you need to do around this to make sure that the development team can safely start engaging with it. Another, I guess that's probably a question should have should have covered at the beginning, but I can imagine a scenario where, like, I I have I'm a developer. I have an MSDN subscription, so I have you know a hundred dollars or whatever the the UK equivalent is of free Azure credits per month. And so, if I'm doing these, can I, I, can these templates be run across subscriptions or across tenants, or is it tied to where it was built? No, no. So you can run them. So any template you write will be generic enough, hopefully, that you can run it wherever you need to run it in it, be it in different subscriptions, different tenants. There. Generally, you, you, you don't tie them to a specific subscription in the template. That's one of the things you pass in as a variable or a parameter to say, you know, I want to deploy in this subscription with this resource group and, and so on. You can even do actually deploy templates across subscriptions and tenants. So you can deploy into some resources in here, some resources in a different subscription and so on. And there is functionality to do that as well. Okay, so now let's say, again, I'm gonna focus from the developer perspective. How, how do I get started to run these templates? Is, uh, obviously, I'm in my code editor, right? Or, or am I in the portal? Where, where do I get started? Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting uh, view. So it, it depends how you like to learn. So there, there, are, there are a very large amount of examples out there of, of templates. Um, ARM templates is a big GitHub repo of hundreds of templates that people have written doing different things that you can start with. There's a lot of Terraform examples and documentation. So if you want to start with just saying, okay, let's have a look at someone somebody's already written, we'll go ahead and, and test it out. Um, that There's a lot of resources out there. If you're more engage with a more formal learning experience you know the, the plural site world and those sort of things there are um, a lot of videos and, and things out there around different techniques you'll probably find there are more things around Terraform than there are around perhaps around the others because that's because it's cross cross platform it's got a lot larger audience um, but there are a lot of tutorials and things around there but from my perspective really the best way to learn this is, is to start writing some code and deploying it and seeing what you get. You can start with some very cheap resources. You can start deploying a storage account or something like that that costs pennies um, just, just to see how it works and, and see you know what you write to turn into infrastructure. I, well, I, I assume I need some type of um, extension to Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code, or, uh, or, or where where do I where do you do it? I guess we'll start there. How, when you're writing these, how do you do it? Yeah, so I, I, I tend to use Visual Studio Code, and I mean you can write the you could write these templates in Notepad if you wanted to, but there are a lot of uh, extensions that will help you write code. There is a, a Visual Studio Code extension for ARM templates, which uh, obviously knows all the language, has snippets and um, IntelliSense and all those sort of things. Similarly, there are ones for for the other languages too. Terraform and Pulumi, they all have extensions for, for Visual Studio Code, um, for Big Visual Studio as well. You can write ARM templates in there. And then there are there are some third-party tools out there as well that will do those sort of things. Um, but I tend to stick to Visual Studio Code. Which kind of makes sense because then I can I can push that into my Git repo using the same tool, right? Yeah. 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 And then, then if I want to deploy a template, do I do that from my machine? Do I do that from the cloud? Do I do that from the tool that I'm using? Where does that start? There are actually a few different ways you can do it. You could probably do all of the ones you mentioned. The simplest way when you're testing and learning things is to do it from your machine. And if you take, uh, usually, well, usually you're going to do it from a command line um, of some sort. So for ARM templates, that you can do it through the Azure PowerShell or through the Azure CLI. Um, Terraform has its own command line tool, as does Pulumi. Um, so you can you can do that from the command line. And that's that's usually the quickest way to get feedback and actually check whether it worked and see the error messages and, and so on. 
once you get to a point where you want to start moving into a more uh, production or automated fashion, then you are going to start wanting to run them either from your build pipeline or there is the functionality in Azure where you can actually upload templates into the portal and run them directly from the portal if you want to sort of start giving them to people to run. Um, so there, you can then start using yeah, other tools for doing that. But during the development phase is going to be quickest. I'm intrigued by that uploaded to the portal bit because I can see that being helpful if I have a dev team, right? And maybe maybe my uh, me as a lead developer say, well, here's the six things that I needed to to create for this step, and now you're going to do a bug fix. So run this template that's available, mm-hmm. right, to provision your stuff. And then I guess setting the context for what subscription is the next big question, right? Is that again you mentioned that could be a parameter or or something, or, or how involved does that get to be? Yeah, so there, there there are a couple of different steps in this. So the first thing, when you run them, and let's take the command line running, for example, if you if you run a deployment um, for ARM templates from the command line, you specify generally a resource group you want to deploy your resources into. And so that resource group obviously is in a subscription and in a tenant, and so it will take that context um, to deploy into. Now, you can override that, so you can have other things within your template that say, actually, this particular thing doesn't go in that resource group. It goes in a different resource group, but you have the option to do that, but generally it will take the one you give at the the command line. Um, You can set them with environment variables in something like in in Terraform, for example, you can set the subscription using an environment variable, um, which means you can use that in in your pipelines. There are various different ways to set the scope. And some things, if you start then looking at deploying things that are higher scope, like you want to create a resource group itself, or you want to create um, Azure policies, which sit outside of a resource group, then you're going to go up a level in the scope and you're actually going to be defining the subscription you're deploying to rather than the resource group and, and so on. Okay, and so as a developer, again, I'm, I'm starting small. If I launch the command line, I'm probably doing a login or a set connection of some sort, or even in Visual Studio Code, it tells me to log into a subscription. So that starts there, and then that's just carried all the way through as I'm using the command line options. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's, it's using the native Azure PowerShell or CLI. You set your subscription, and then you run this. It's a new AZ resource group deployment is the PowerShell command, where you give it some parameters, one of which is the resource group, and the other one is your template and you say go. Oh, off we go, yeah. yeah. See, less thinking like that is helpful for us developers. We're a little slow in that <laughs> regard. Um, so is there any other key ideas that I didn't think of to ask you about? Again, this is uh, uh, come from the developer side. It, it's uh, it's uh, a, lot, a lot to understand. So from your point of view, any other big gotchas that people should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I think the big one I mentioned a bit earlier, but is is to start treating this code like you would any other code. So check it into your version control. Make sure you you version control it. People are uh, if people are going to contribute to it, you do it in a in a collaborative fashion through something like Git, um, and then perhaps even start thinking about things like testing. You can run automated tests against your code to try and catch problems before you deploy. Because as, as we mentioned before, you know it can take quite a long time to deploy stuff. It can also be quite expensive if you're deploying a lot of things. So if you can run some tests beforehand. Um, and make sure that you catch things before you de- you actually create any resources. That can be a big time and cost saver. And there are a number of tools that actually have some some features in there that help you in that regard. So Terraform kind of pioneered this, but the concept of a plan. So you can you can run the Terraform plan command um, when you do a deployment or before you do a deployment, and it will go and compare what you're asking for in your template against what's actually been deployed and so it will tell you okay if you run this template i am going to create six vms delete two create a storage account change this thing and so you can get an idea of 
of what you're going to do before you do it, which can be really helpful if you didn't realize actually it's going to delete that that thing or recreate that. Um, you can now do the same thing with ARM templates as well. So they released, a, it's in preview at the minute, but a command called what if, which is the same sort of thing, is to do a plan before you deploy. Those are really useful tools for you to go and figure out what's going to happen and as a learning experience. So you can run them and say, oh, I didn't realize you know that was going to happen and, and now I understand why. Um, so that's a pretty useful tool. And potentially you can even integrate that tool into your testing as well. Excellent. And as we mentioned at the very beginning, I, I saw you on, on Twitter. So how do folks uh, follow what you're doing up on the social medias and blogs? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Sam Kogan, it's all one word. Um, I have a blog at samkogan.com. Um, and I've, I've recently started doing a new series, actually, for anyone who's looking to learn ARM templates. A series on YouTube called ARM Template Masterclass, where I go through and try and teach the basics of, of using ARM templates. So if that's something you're looking to get started with, I'd recommend that. And I, I've already bookmarked that class. I haven't had time yet with build and stuff going on. But uh, no. yeah, awesome, the, the great stuff. And, and thanks a lot. It really is helpful to, for developers, I think, to learn this stuff and, and avoid that big bang that's uh, going to have. I, and I love you said blast radius. That Those are a couple <laughs> terms we don't use too often in the developer space. So great to have those. Thanks again for doing this. No problem at all. Happy to be here. For listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 